This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, I'll finish telling the original story of Aladdin, which contains much more beheading, poisoning, and slaves than Disney's version. Then, in the Mythological Creature of the Week segment, I'll tell you about shape-shifting South American dolphin people who, by acting like normal dolphins doing normal dolphin things, have driven people insane. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 2B, A Whole New World of Problems. Previously on the show, young Aladdin's father died, leaving him and his mother destitute. His uncle, a famous magician, conveniently shows up and dupes Aladdin into following him out into the wilderness and retrieving a magic lamp. He gives Aladdin a ring with a genie in it and betrays the boy, though not before accidentally sealing him underground with a lamp. The magician absconds back to Africa, and Aladdin makes his way out of the cave by virtue of the genie of the ring. When he gets home, he rubs the lamp and finds the much more powerful genie. He uses it to make huge feasts, from which he sells silver platters and builds an upper middle class life. One day, he gets a forbidden look at Princess Ruby, the Sultan's daughter, and his mother goes and secures her hand in marriage but the sultan asks for three months to prepare. Two months later, the sultan forgets his promise and weds Ruby to the vizier's son. Aladdin was in a bad mood, and though his mother told him to forget about it, they were already wed, and there was nothing he could do. He thought about how to make it right. He couldn't have the genie make any overt moves, because then the people of the city would think him an evil sorcerer, and the sultan may even execute him. He thought about it, and remembered that even though they were wed, the marriage had not yet been consummated. That night, he waited in a basement somewhere in the city. He had spoken with the genie, and whenever Ruby and her new husband went to bed, it would trigger his plan. He sat there in complete darkness, waiting. An hour passed, and then, in an instant, Ruby's bed was transported to the basement. Her husband wasn't there and Aladdin knew that he was locked in another cold basement somewhere else in the city. She sat there, trembling. He told her, You're not here so I can soil your honor, princess, but rather because your father made promises he did not keep. Sleep well, my princess. And with that, he lay down next to her. For some reason, he placed a sword in between them. The princess didn't sleep at all. As the sun was rising, Aladdin summoned the genie, and he jumped out of bed, and had the genie return the bed, bride, and groom to their bedchamber. In an instant, they found themselves there. And, because this isn't weird or anything, the sultan, who's Ruby's father, barges in and asks her how she enjoyed the night. She's sheepish, because she's still trying to understand what's going on, having been so recently transported back into her room. The sultan is perturbed, and goes and talks to his wife. Later in the day, the queen meets with her daughter, who tells her all about being transported out of her room by a terrifying genie. The mother goes and talks to the vizier's son, who says, No, that's insane. We had a great wedding night, and absolutely consummated the marriage, which I was totally capable of doing. He says this, presumably, because he wants to remain married to the princess. The mother dismisses her daughter's story as a crazy dream, and they go out and parade around the capital. Aladdin watches Ruby and her husband force smiles on the parade, and laughs as all the people envy them, since he knows how they spent last night, and how they'll spend tonight. 
He does this for another night, and again, for some reason, the Sultan comes barging into his daughter's bedroom the moment they're back. He eagerly asks how the night went, and once again, his daughter is evasive and refuses to answer. Then, Sultan Shortfuse moves well past reasonable, gentle questions and pulls out a sword, threatening to cut off her head if she doesn't tell him what's going on. She tells him the whole story, and he says, Sure, that's definitely what happened. You know what? I'll have a retinue of my best men standing guard in your bedchamber tonight, so you and your husband can finally have a romantic wedding night. Meeting the vizier out in the hallway, he tells him to inquire with his son what actually happened. After much prodding, the vizier's son tells his father what Ruby says is true, and that he can't endure another night like the two just had. The vizier tells him not to say that to anyone, and goes to the sultan. When he reaches the sultan, he tells the ruler that, yes, Ruby's story was true, and they need to... But he's interrupted. Because his daughter's story was true, they won't try to fight against the supernatural to keep these two people together. Their marriage will be called off and annulled. The vizier's annoyed, but there's really nothing he can do. When the sultan says something, it's the law. And just like that, the marriage is annulled, but the sultan has still forgotten all about his promise to Aladdin. At the end of the third month, Aladdin's mother walked into where the sultan was holding court. She reminded him of his promise, and he was flabbergasted. He had promised his daughter to a tailor's son, and even though the man was making a steady middle-class income now, he was still from low stock and unworthy to marry the daughter of a sultan. The vizier, who was even more insulted by this, since his son couldn't even stay married to the princess for three days, came up with a plan. With his vizier's prompting, the sultan said that Aladdin, to prove his worth, had to provide forty dishes filled with gold and jewels. Forty slave girls had to bear the dishes. If Aladdin can make this happen, he can marry Princess Ruby. The mother returned home in consternation, saying that it was impossible. People like them couldn't get jewels and slaves, forgetting precisely the thing that could get them those jewels and slaves. Aladdin laughs, seeing the obvious solution. He tells her he'll take care of it, and she leaves to the market to get some food, because I guess they stopped relying on the genie for that. And take care of it he does. He goes into his bedroom, summons the genie, and wishes for exactly what the sultan demanded. As an aside, I find this about-face regarding the power of the lamp to be fairly odd. Up to this point, Aladdin had been super judicious with the power of the genie, mainly using it in an indirect manner to get what he wants and needs. He needs money to live on, so he has it summoned feasts and he sells the silver. He needs Ruby and her husband to get an annulment, so he thinks up a way to terrorize them and keep them from consummating their marriage. He doesn't even use it when asking for the princess's hand, opting instead to send his mother with the fruit jewels he picked. From here on out, though, we'll see him stop being so cautious. He'll use the lamp to summon the exact solution he needs, immediately, and this actually gets him into a great amount of trouble. Even though he has a magical genie, and never really played by the rules, you can sort of see why he responded the way he did. The sultan went back on a promise, and made an extremely unreasonable request, one that the sultan himself likely couldn't even fulfill. And it's easy to see why Aladdin would stop being a reasonable, practical man in the face of a world that has shown that it only wants to keep him in his place. There's no mention of where all these slaves come from, or even where they stand in Aladdin's family house. But he has his mother march them immediately to the sultan. The slaves march two by two 
male and female, up the streets to the palace with Aladdin's mother. When they reached the Sultan, everyone was struck by how beautiful the sight was. You know, because opulent oppression is so beautiful. The narrator also makes a point to mention, several times, just how amazingly beautiful these slave girls are. Even the Sultan chimes in. It's all a bit much. They came in to where the Sultan was holding court, and the slave women placed their golden dishes full of jewels and precious metals before the Sultan. When the vizier saw them, he said, All of this is not worth a pairing of Ruby's fingernails. The Sultan could see that this came from a place of envy, and he said that this was sufficient implying that it was definitely worth more than his daughter. He told Aladdin's mother that Aladdin could marry the Princess Ruby. The Sultan took the slaves and the jewels to Ruby, who was still sad about things not working out with the vizier's son. When she saw the riches, though, and learned that she was to be married, again, this night, to the man that brought them, she forgot about what's-his-name. Back in their home, Aladdin's mother told him the good news, and he went about further abusing the power of the lamp, he summoned a wonderful, bejeweled bath where he was bathed by jinn, clothes better than any king on earth, a horse, slaves to attend to his mother, and so on, and made his way to the palace, surrounded by slaves who were throwing gold out to the city's inhabitants on their way. When they made it to the palace, the sultan was awestruck that this son of a tailor had met this ridiculous demand for the slaves and gold in a single day and now rode with such a retinue, was not really questioned. The sultan only wished that he had gotten to know the young man sooner. The sultan threw a banquet for Aladdin, and it said that Aladdin spoke with wit and eloquence of one befitting a royal position. Where the formerly poor son of a tailor learned all the wit and eloquence of one befitting a royal position is not quite addressed. The sultan draws up a marriage contract and weds Aladdin to the princess Ruby right there at the banquet. After about a few days of feasts, Ruby spends the third night married with Aladdin, though this one without a kidnapping genie or a sword between them, and everything presumably goes off without a hitch because they're very happy together. Aladdin wants to build a palace worthy of Ruby, and the Sultan, instead of being offended, offers him a plot of land behind his current palace. Aladdin, having seen how expedient it is to ask the genie for exactly what he wants instead of cleverly working around things, asks the genie for exactly what he wants. And the next morning, there's a magnificent palace on the plot of land that had been gifted to him. The sultan is awestruck, and even happier that he married this daughter off to the exceedingly rich Aladdin. The vizier, though, rightly assumes that this has to be by means of enchantment. You know, that Aladdin built this palace overnight. Oh, and it's the most amazing palace in the world, with rooms literally filled with gold and jewels. The sultan, clearly missing the point, says the vizier is just jealous because his son couldn't build her such a palace. The vizier, though definitely jealous, does have a point and goes away seething. One morning, Aladdin invites the sultan with all of his heads of state over for breakfast. The sultan notices the lattice work on one of the windows is not completed, and he wants to do it himself. Aladdin remarks that it would be great for Ruby to have this in her house, to remember her father by, and approves. Thus begins an odd little interchange where Aladdin entrusts this to the sultan, and as it turns out, the sultan can't find enough jewels in his kingdom to complete half of the job to match the other latticework. Aladdin gets exasperated with the workers and decides to send them away, summoning the genie to complete it himself. The sultan learns of this, kisses his son-in-law, and exclaims how beautiful the window was. 
This not only goes against the original premise of the whole thing, but seems a bit insulting to the Sultan. Of course, none of these things are addressed, and the story just plods along. Aladdin, with a life of poverty behind him, took to the streets regularly and threw gold out for the people. He also turned into a fantastic horse rider, and, as the son of the Sultan, was appointed to the chief of his troops. He was actually out at war on behalf of the Sultan when the magician, his false uncle, returned to the Chinese capital in search of the boy he had left for dead. Having returned home to the Barbary Coast, he began to hear whispers coming from the east of a young man whose star was on the rise. As the years went on, these whispers transformed in the exclamations of wonder. The man had not only married the Chinese sultan's daughter, but built her the most wonderful palace in the world, overnight. He rides out in the streets and gives gold to the poor, and now he leads the Chinese armies to victory. The magician, through some form of divination, confirms this, and decides to return east, take the lamp, and do what he thought he did years ago, kill Aladdin. This cretinous punk may have a genie, the magician thinks, but he is no match for the man's wit and the powers of the arcane. He travels to China, and when he goes to the city, he goes to a coppersmith and has him cast many brand new lamps, and then he changes clothes so that he looks like a crazy old beggar. He then goes around the city with a bag of shiny lamps and screams out that he's trading old lamps for new. He repeats this refrain as he stomps around the city, drawing a small crowd which jeers at him, laughing that he must be crazy to trade these brand new lamps for old, worn-out ones. The urchins of the city laugh and throw things at the crazy man, because aren't medieval perceptions of mental illness great? He approaches Aladdin's palace, and Ruby notices the hubbub in the streets. Apparently, this man is trading old lamps for new, and because of an astoundingly low threshold for humor, she thinks that this is hilarious. She calls to her servants. They have to give this man an old lamp and get a new one. It'll be great. But the servants say, we live in a palace. We don't have any old lamps. Hmm, Ruby thinks. Hasn't she seen an old lamp in her husband's closet? Wouldn't he just be so happy if he came home to a shiny new lamp instead of that nasty old one? Yes. Yes, he definitely would. She has a servant go fetch it. They take the magic lamp to the magician, and they find it just amazingly hilarious that he actually exchanges it. They laugh so hard at taking advantage of someone they perceive to be mentally handicapped for fun and profit that they don't notice the magician shove the lamp down his sleeve, drop the bag of new lamps, and take off into the crowd, all pretense of insanity gone. He travels out of the city for miles and miles, in the country, away from any sign of civilization. There, he sets up camp and waits for nightfall, showing great restraint and not rubbing the lamp immediately. When the sun drops below the horizon, he finally rubs the lamp and summons the genie. The genie either doesn't seem to notice or doesn't care that he has a new master, because he utters his standard phrase of, Here I am, your slave is before you. Ask what you will. The magician has known what he wanted since he heard Aladdin was alive. He wanted to take revenge on that grimy fool. He tells the genie to take Aladdin's palace from its place, with all its inhabitants inside, and set it down in the magician's home country of Africa, in his hometown. 
The genie shrugs and tells the magician to close his eyes, and when he reopens them, it will be done, and he will be in the palace in Africa. He blinks, and he finds himself in Aladdin's palace, the servants and Princess Ruby asleep, not realizing they were no longer in China. The Sultan was accustomed to waking up and looking out at his daughter's magnificent palace, and I can only imagine that, upon taking his tea that morning, he does a spit take when he sees the empty plot of land that he had gifted Aladdin years ago. The vizier walked in and saw the plot of land in the Sultan's distress, and he knew he had Aladdin. He told the Sultan that it was obvious that the palace's construction and disappearance was a result of enchantment, and that Aladdin must be held accountable for his crimes. The vizier says he'll bring Aladdin to the Sultan. He learns that Aladdin is still out on the front, leading troops, as if he had nothing to do with the disappearing palace. Days pass, and Aladdin arrives in chains, bedraggled, to the city's gates. He was being marched through the streets, and the people knew that the Sultan intended to cut off Aladdin's head. It was too much. One of their own, who rode the streets throwing out gold, had risen so high, and now the Sultan was going to decapitate him for the possibility of being involved in enchanting? No. No, he wasn't. One person got it in his head to march with Aladdin in the guard, then another, then another, until a mob surrounded them, some armed. The guards taking Aladdin up were uneasy, and the ones at the palace gates didn't stop the now massive mob from following Aladdin inside. The last few members of the mob commanded the gates shut behind them. The Sultan, misunderstanding why the people were there, made a show of calling his executioner to take Aladdin's head for practicing sorcery, and the executioner, rightly reading the room, paused to let the people have their say. The citizens made it inescapably clear that if the sultan took Aladdin's head, they would take his, and then overthrow his government, and the city would descend into chaos. The sultan then said, Behead him? Heavens no, I said pardon him. I don't know where you got behead him. That's so weird and he publicly pardoned Aladdin. The crowd collectively breathed a sigh of relief and dispersed. It was then Aladdin asked why he was there, and the sultan opened the curtains, and the color drained from his face. His palace, with his wife, was gone. He professed up and down his innocence, but the sultan did not believe him. The sultan told him that he pardoned him mainly because of the angry mob, but also mainly because if Aladdin was involved with sorcery, he might know how to get Princess Ruby back. He demanded that Aladdin bring her back immediately, and Aladdin said that he had no idea where she was. He was just as distraught as the Sultan. If the Sultan would give him 40 days, though, he would bring Ruby back, or he would come to the Sultan and present himself for beheading. The Sultan didn't like letting the suspect sorcerer go, but it was his best way of finding Ruby, so he agreed. Worst case scenario, he would still get to behead the young man. Aladdin left the palace to cheers from the people, but he was torn up inside. For two days, he went around the city trying to find any information about what happened to his wife and palace, but no one knew anything. He found that he had no choice but to go off into the wilderness. He wandered the deserts of China until he came to a stream. He bent down to wash his face and began weeping. He had no idea what to do. His wife was somewhere, and in mere days, he would be killed by his father-in-law. 
he rubbed his hands together as he prayed to Allah. He was interrupted in his prayers by the genie of the ring. Yes, he apparently forgot he had been wearing the genie's ring the whole time, and it appeared in front of him saying, Here I am, your slave is before you, ask what you will. He sees an obvious but incorrect solution to his problem, and asks the genie to return his palace and wife. The genie actually appears distraught when he says that since the taking of the palace was the work of a genie, a more powerful genie, hint hint, he couldn't grant that request. Aladdin sat and thought, and decided to go with the next most obvious solution, and asked the genie to set him down next to his palace. The genie said his refrain of, hearkening and obedience, and took Aladdin to his palace. Aladdin blinked and he was in a beautiful garden, the air thick with moisture after being in the desert. He saw his palace looming ahead. After the hum of life that accompanied the place in China, it was nearly deserted out here. He snuck up to the walls, but when he saw that there was not only no one manning the wall, but no one at the gate, he slipped inside with only the necessary degree of stealth. He heard footsteps as he approached a corner and put his hand on his sword. He hid, and when the figure turned the corner, he put the tip of the sword at her throat. Yes, her. As it turns out, it was Princess Ruby's servant. She said that the princess saw Aladdin enter the palace and asked her to come get him. Aladdin was so happy, he sheathed his sword and ran to meet his wife. There were tears and kissing and all that, and she told him that the horrible magician was out at the moment. Aladdin said that that was great. Hey, have you seen an old copper lamp I keep in my closet? She averted her eyes and told him the whole story. She finished by telling Aladdin that every night the magician would come and make advances at Ruby, telling her of Aladdin's poor past and that he was no doubt dead by now. She had spurned his advances so far, but was glad Aladdin was here to take her away. He paused. He had a plan. He told Ruby he would be back. On the streets, he found some poor traveler and traded clothes and went to a local market and found henbane, which is a powerful poison. He then returned to the palace. He went to Ruby and explained his incredibly obvious plan. That night, when the magician returned, he found Ruby's door open and her being prepared by her maids for dinner. He was surprised by her change, and even more surprised when she looked at him, smiled, and said how happy she was that he had returned. She told him that she decided to listen to him and give up hoping for Aladdin. She could see that he was the only man for her. Why don't they have some dinner and get to know each other better? And, hey, doesn't your country have really great wine? We should have some wine. Like a really dark red that someone could hide a powerful poison in. He has just the thing, and harshly orders the house staff that he kidnapped along with the princess to make dinner for them. They sit there, she flirting and getting him nice and drunk, and they have dinner together. At the end, she says that they have a custom in China where, to show love, they drink from each other's glass at the end of the meal. The magician, in his heavily inebriated state, thinks that anything would be a good idea, and agrees. Ruby surreptitiously nods at her handmaid, who dumps the henbane in. He pauses slightly, looking at the drink, but when Ruby kisses him on the cheek, he forgets any lingering doubts about her and drains the glass. He gags, coughs, and lolls back in his chair, eyes open as if dead. The false smile on Ruby's face is replaced by an expression of hate and disgust that had been just under the surface. The housemaid runs and throws open the front gate. 
allowing Aladdin in. Aladdin ran in and kissed his wife, thanked her, and told her to go in the other room. He needed to do something. When he was alone, he fished around up the magician's sleeve and pulled out the lamp. He hesitated briefly. Sure, the magician had kidnapped his wife and tried to have him murdered, but if it wasn't for the old con man, Aladdin would still be in rags in the street. No, Aladdin thought. If he let this man live, he'd just keep trying to get the lamp. And besides, he knew too much about the secret source of Aladdin's wealth. He swung down sharply with his sword, and the magician's head thudded on the floor. He summons the genie and asks him to take the palace and all of its inhabitants back to China. He blinks, and he's back home, and it's the middle of the night. They all go to bed, with the magician's body still sitting in the dining room. In the 30 days since Aladdin left, the sultan had been getting up every morning and hoping against hope that he would see his daughter's palace on the plot of land near his castle. The next morning, he almost missed it, but when he saw it, he squealed and ran to the palace. He hugged and kissed his daughter, so grateful to have her back. He was wary of Aladdin, but thankful that he had rescued his daughter. They told the story in its entirety, Aladdin leaving out the connection of the lamp to the magic that had transported them there and back again, and Princess Ruby not correcting him, instead just mentioning that he had figured out the secret by which the magician did it. The sultan sighed and apologized, accepting Aladdin back into his good graces, since it was obvious that the young man had nothing to do with the magic that had resulted in his daughter being taken to the other side of the world. The magician's body was cremated, and his ashes spread on the wind. There were ten days of feasting after Aladdin returned, and he continued to be loved by the sultan, his wife, and the people. In a few years, the sultan died at a respectable old age, and the throne passed to Ruby and Aladdin. The boy who'd roamed the street, staring up at the palace, dreaming of a better life, was now the sultan, by way of some massively powerful, supernatural beings. Contrary to anyone's expectations, through his understanding of the people, he ended up being a good ruler, and he and Ruby's descendants sat on the throne for generations. That's the original story of Aladdin. Of course, it can't compare to many retellings, especially Disney's Aladdin. Disney's was written by and for people of our time period, and the simplification of the story, such as changing the rarely used second genie into a magic carpet, and making Aladdin an orphan to cut out a lot of unnecessary plot points, and the condensing of characters, such as the magician, vizier, and the vizier's son into Jafar, make the story much stronger. The original was interesting enough to inspire great retellings, but I for one had a hard time slogging through the dour predictability and seeing the character of Aladdin as anything other than a ridiculous Mary Sue. There's a link to what that means in the show notes, but basically a Mary Sue is a character that's nearly perfect in every way and good at everything he or she tries. Next week, I'll start the saga of the Volsungs, a story of deeply flawed people. The most famous story of the lot is the story of Sigurd the Dragon Slayer. However, family members, being too good at hunting, and baking with your uncle all end up to be way, way more dangerous than taking on a dragon. J.R.R. Tolkien was actually inspired by a little ring in that story that is wrought by the gods and sought by many, yet brings misfortune on its owners, to whom it's very... precious. Before the mythological creature of the week, I just want to say that if you've enjoyed this show, please rate it on iTunes. If you haven't found us on iTunes yet, 
you can go to itunes.mythpodcast.com. Also, you can find transcripts, pictures, and extras at www.mythpodcast.com. I'm on Twitter at at MythPodcast. The Mythological Creature of the Week segment is where I talk about interesting, bizarre, horrifying, or hilarious creatures unrelated to the larger stories. The creature this week is the Encantado of South America. These are, of course, shape-shifting dolphins in the Amazon River. Despite living in an underwater utopian dolphin paradise called Encante, they love to come up to the surface and join in the pleasures and hardships of human life. When they get to the banks of the river, they'll change into human form, but they can't completely change and will always have a bald spot on the top of their head, so they wear hats. They can also enchant people into doing what they say, or they can change people into Encantado themselves, which is why they're feared. They are said to kidnap humans they've fallen in love with, children they've had with people, or just anyone for company to take them down to their underwater kingdom. Though how this doesn't result in near-immediate drowning for the human is unclear. They're said to be characterized by three things. Superior music ability, seductiveness and love of sex, and attraction to parties. Some who have encountered them while riding in a canoe have been said to go insane just by interaction with the Encantado. Though the shapeshifters really just nudged the boats and followed them for a little while. You know, like a normal dolphin. As crazy as all this sounds, I've included a picture in the show notes and on mythpodcast.com of a very ugly Amazonian freshwater dolphin, and it's kind of easy to see how someone could think that it's somehow part human. There's actually a blindingly simple way to find out if someone's an encantado. Remember how I said that they'd always have a bald spot on the top of their head? All you have to do is snatch their hat off and see if they have a blowhole. That's right, they can transform enough to be the parent of a human child. However, they can't actually transform their blowhole. So they'll always have a bald spot on the top of their head with a blowhole. So that's always a dead giveaway. That's it for this week's episode. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, is by the band Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by the indomitable Steve Combs. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. If you get a custom-tailored suit, it's going to fit perfectly and make you look great. Think about that with a Noble First for your organization. No matter what the size of your company is, a Noble First will analyze your data and collaborate with you to custom tailor digital solutions so you can focus on making your organization grow. When it comes to data-centric solutions specifically for your organization, choose a Noble First. A Noble First makes living simple. See for yourself at anoblefirst.com, E-N-N-O-B-L-E-First.com.